we're looking at contrasts. We're looking at contrasts in this thing called the human condition, the human experience that, that the Bible and specifically the New Testament talks about. And today we're looking at another fundamental contrast to the human condition. Two sides to being human. Here they are, living and dead. All of humanity is going to find themselves in one of these camps. You're either alive or you're dead. Living is better, okay? Now, I was driving by a church the other day, and you know how some churches, they have those signs out front, and they have the, 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 the movable messages, like they could put a, a Bible verse or a you know, service time or something like that up on it. And I noticed what this one church said. It said, one goal, heaven. And it struck me as really off. Because when the Bible talks about the human condition, life is always the goal. I get where that church sign was coming from, but it really seemed to have the message, your goal of living is to die. All right, let's look forward to that one together. Just do it, wait your time. I find Christians are saturated with this idea that death is better. And nothing can be further from the biblical truth. I want to show you just some things today about what the Bible has to say about life and how this thing called life or living stands at the heart and soul of what the hope and promise and intention of God has always been. Let's start with the Old Testament, okay? There's this one psalm, and look what the psalmist says. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? What do you think the rhetorical answer to that question is? Nobody. What is the psalmist saying? Save me, God. And not in some theological way that we often reduce it to, but save my life, save my being, save my existence. Life is better. When I'm alive, I can worship you. You see this? How about this one? This comes out of Deuteronomy. It stands as one of the most uh, heart and soul passages of the Old Testament. And this is what Moses says. These are the commands, the decrees, the laws, and so forth that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe so that you may enjoy death, right? Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord your God has promised you. Notice it doesn't say what I think most people think it should say. These are the commands I've, I, I've, I've commanded you to obey so that you may die and go to heaven. It doesn't say that. It wasn't the promise. Here's another one from another psalm. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With dying and going to heaven, will I satisfy him and show him my salvation? It just isn't there that way. From the beginning, death was always considered a punishment by God, not a hope. Even Jesus says this, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they may die, right? I've come that they may die. Jesus came so you can die and go to heaven. Is that what he says? For God, the hope is always life. 
And when you look at this thing called the human experience, these two states of being alive or dead, the Bible always looks at living as better. Now, the Bible will even go so far to say that death is a punishment. You could look at that one. And this is why, central to the idea of the New Testament, the hope is resurrection. Because barring Jesus coming back first, we're going to die, right? That is not God's intention for you. And the hope of eternal life that God spells out in the New Testament is not dying and going to heaven. It is Jesus coming back and the dead being raised someday. This is why he says things like, for death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead will also come through a man. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be disembodied spirits that float indefinitely. No, all will be made alive. Are you with me? Do you see how this works at the fundamental level? Life is the goal. Now, because this is so uh, contrary, I guess you can say, to the way that I think most believers think and that the way that the Christian hope is often portrayed, I want to do something again with you here this morning. I, I did this about a year and a half ago with this congregation. You might remember it, but I want to set up a sort of timeline here to illustrate how the Christian hope actually works. I need three volunteers, and if you don't raise your hand, I'll pick on you. Okay, come on up. Need two more. Come on, you're not going to have to sing a solo. Don't be weird. Come on up. All right. Thank you. All right. You're not going out the door? Okay. Then you are standing right there. Okay. This is Christy. Everyone say hi. All right. Christy is 929 a.m. on December 15th. 15th? 16th? Where are we? December 16th, 2014. All right. That's her. What did I say? December? You know who she is. All right. Now... This is where we are at in eternity, okay? This is Kent. Kent is eternity, all right? Kent, take it and go off into eternity. We got a new room, Kent. Just hang a left at the door and go on inside, all right? Tuck yourself in that room, baby, all right? Okay, and eternity just kind of disappears somewhere. We can't see it. We don't know what it's going to hold. It just kind of vanishes beyond the realm of our ability to see. There it goes, all right? Now, if you'd like to come over here, I would like to introduce you this morning to the risen Christ. All right? Welcome the risen Christ. All this time, you never knew he was in our midst. All right. Now, at some point between 9.30 and eternity... The risen Christ is going to appear. And we're just going to kind of put you right here. But the risen Christ always has, right, arms raised. you got to look like the risen Christ owned the part. Okay, fantastic. So what we have now is a projection, a very wobbly, loose projection of the space-time continuum. There we go. All right. Like a wormhole in there or something of how eternity is going to play out. We find ourselves right here. And at some point along this line, the risen Christ is going to return, right? Now, we don't know when that's going to be. It could be right here. It could be right here. It could be here. But what we do know is that this thing called eternity beyond the risen Christ 
is far longer than the time between now and his return. Does that make sense? Now, the question of the passage that we just read and that we're going to look at today is that if life is the goal, what happens to the people who have died somewhere between risen Christ and 9.32 a.m. on December 16th? I'm owning it, 2014. All right? Does this make sense? Because for God, life is the goal. And if life is better, the question of the passage is, what about people who have died in the meantime? What about people who have died somewhere on the continuum up to here before the Christ returns? Does this make sense? All right, risen Christ, 933 and eternity. Thank you for your time. You can like break, all right? Because for God, the death in this little period here was never the plan. What God had always intended was an unbroken line echoing back to the beginning and continuing on with everything happening in the middle that we call the human experience as an interruption, as a hiccup, as a glitch in the system, if you will, because of humanity's rebellion against a God who intended something good. And he who started it promises that there is going to come a day when it will be restored. And with that restoration, everything that was broken in the beginning will be set right again. Now, if you don't get that, then you won't get what this passage is about at all. Because what First Thessalonians does is it comes in... I got a bobbling mic here. Sorry, guys. What First Thessalonians does is it comes in and it asks the question, if God has come to bring us life, then how come those who are in Christ die? Where is he? And where is this life that he talks about? Now, I'd like to invite you to take a Bible out this morning. You could look for one under your chair and turn to First Thessalonians with me and look at, ver- or excuse me, chapter 4. And we're going to key in at verse, verse 13. First Thessalonians 4, starting at chapter 13. And this is how he starts. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And then he jumps into this. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And you know what falling asleep means here? It's a euphemism. It's a kind way of putting a harsh reality. It means death. I think we're all grasping that. He says that God will bring with Jesus those who have died in him. Question, where? He goes on, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till what he will call in Greek the parousia of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
See, what you got to do is got to get yourself into a Thessalonian mind. You've got to get yourself into the mind of these early believers who are hearing this message that there is, in fact, one in our generation who has risen from the dead. By looking at Jesus, it looks as though death has been defeated. He's conquered the grave, right? Three days later, after death, he was dead. We knew it. He was buried. He is walking, eating, talking, breathing, and doing the things that living people do that are better by far. But then 32 turns into 33 AD, and 33 turns into 35 AD, and grandpa's not getting any younger, and 35 turns into 40 AD, and 40 into 45, and something strange is happening. Jesus has come and has beaten death and resurrection, but people are still dying. And we find ourselves here in 2014, and none of us are untouched by this, right? A parent or a spouse, God forbid, maybe a child, a friend. And the Thessalonians started to cry out, what kind of bunk kingdom is this? What's going on? Where is the life that God has always promised? And Paul writes these words to infuse a sense of perspective and hope into those who have to face the other side of this human condition called death. He says that, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And that we who are still alive, who are left till the parousia of the Lord, as it puts it, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want to talk to you about that word right there, parousia. All right? If you're looking in your translation, you probably have something like what? Coming? Other ways you'll see it translated are things like um, arrival, visit, Uh, Official visit actually even becomes a a common connotation. And if you look at it in Latin, it might even say something as well, Adventus, all right? This time when the Lord is going to appear, the time when Christ is going to come, and dare I say, make his official visit. Because see, here's the thing. Christian words are hijacked words. And this word parousia is a Christian word in theological circles. People, if you read the books, will talk about what the parousia is and what it's like, and they use it synonymous with this thing that we probably call the last days. But fundamentally, it's a hijacked word. It's a hijacked word from everyday culture in first century AD in a Greco-Roman world. And it was the heads of state, be it emperors, kings, governors, or whoever it might be, that would also talk and write about these things called parousia. So that when the emperor would come to your town, that would be an official visit. What's an official visit? A parousia. And so for them, the idea of parousia meant when the, when, when the one who is in control, when the one who is ruling would come back. And it's into this that Paul writes what we've just read a moment ago, According to the Lord's own word, we who are left till the parousia of the Lord, until that official visit when the risen Christ comes, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. We who are still left, we who are alive, despite having something that the Bible calls better, according to this passage, don't have something better at all. Because what 1 Thessalonians is trying to say, at least in part, is that in one perspective, death is better. 
Because when you die, the hope that this text gives is that the Lord will take you up to be with him. Remember the one goal slogan from a bit ago? Do you know what the one goal really is? Your purpose, where eternity is going, what life is about? I mean, I could tell you in its most fundamental terms, it's to be with God forever. That's what God set up in the beginning. He made a creation and he made it perfect and he was in harmony with it. And that harmony doesn't really exist nowadays, does it? And the hope that the Bible always points to is that that harmony in the beginning will someday be restored again and we will get to be with God forever. It gets tough for people because you ask someone, you know, where is God? And they'll probably say something like, he's in my heart. I'm sorry, Jesus was five foot six. He's not fitting in there. All right? If this is the sum total of what I have with the presence of God, I have been sold a bad bill of goods because the presence of God is so much bigger than what you and I are experiencing right here. But what Thessalonians is saying is that for those who have died, who have died in the Lord, they're closer, still waiting, still looking for life, still like us waiting for that day for restoration to come, but closer. And so we don't need to grieve like other people who have no hope. Because when we die, God brings with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We get to be in his presence. This whole idea of the official visit, it reminds me of something else that Jesus did, and I think it might help to kind of cast this or frame this in a certain way. Now, if you've traveled in the Christian circles for some time, you might know that that the culmination of the Gospels and of Jesus' mission here on earth was to go to a city called Jerusalem and to suffer and to die by being nailed to a cross, not only is something from human terms that, that, that looked like the putting down of a revolutionary or an insurrectionist or a criminal, but even in God-ordained terms of being handed over for each of our sins. But one week before this happened, something else that was significant took place. And it's become labeled by this term Palm Sunday. You heard of it? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And you might remember the stories where it says the people start thronging out. They start flocking out. They're ripping palm branches off trees. They're taking cloaks off their back. And they're crying out things like, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. They're, they're crying out, welcome to the coming king, to the son of David. Is it sounding like something? In a sense, it was a parousia, treating it as an official visit of any other king. Now, if you look at the story closely, it says a couple of things. It says that when that day came, they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And so the people um, assumed of Jerusalem took palm branches and did what? They went out of the city to meet him, right? But that's not all the story has to say. Because what you'll also see is that when he, Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down to Mount Olive, so he's not in Jerusalem yet, you following this? 
It says, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they have seen. Are the, are the disciples coming out of Jerusalem? No, they're coming with Jesus. So we have two things. We have Jesus coming into the city, and there are people coming out of the city to greet him, while simultaneously there are people coming with Jesus into the city proclaiming in loud voices the miracle they have seen. Two different groups of people that are coming towards a convergence as Jesus comes into the city as this hailed king. Are you with me? Now look at what this does if you read something like Thessalonians. Paul writes this. He says... According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will come down from heaven, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up with them to meet them in the clouds in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. What is going on? The king is coming to his kingdom, but he's not coming alone. He's coming with those who have died in the Lord. And Paul says, I know that the Bible tells you that life is better, but I'm telling you that those who have died in the Lord are experiencing something that is better by far. Because while we wait, they have a greater taste of what it is like to be in the presence of the Lord forever. And the day is coming when that king will return and we who are still alive will not precede those who have tasted death. But look, they're coming. Like the disciples, cheering with them. Look, the king is coming. And I've seen people look at passages like this and interpret it in some kind of strange end times pattern where God is going to snatch people up invisibly from the earth and rapture them away and tuck them away forever. But that's not what the kings of old would do. Would they see a city and go, I'm going to go visit that city, get like two miles away and go, eh. The point of coming to the city is to visit the city. And the point of the people coming up to meet the king is to usher him in to the city that he rules. And so there's two sides of this, this human experience, this thing called life and this thing called death. And life is always the hope. But for those who have died, for those who have died and still wait like you and me, there is a presence of the Lord in his throne room that is better by far than anything we can dream. And Paul says, encourage one another with these words. I bet if I was to ask the question, have you lost someone in your life? If I was to say something like, and don't do it, but stand up if you've lost someone close to you, every one of us here would be on our feet. That hurts, doesn't it? It's hard. It's goodbye. It feels final. But the point of what First Thessalonians is all about is Paul saying this. What those who have died in the Lord have today is better by far than anything we can dream. So take heart and don't grieve like the rest of people because they're with the Lord. And while we wait, we can wait with a hope that says life is coming 
and we'll see him again someday. To those of you here today grieving, or to those of you here who are afraid of death, may you find comfort and strength in these words.